Hey, dinks! Welcome to Dennis in the Know. This is your backstage pass for current trends, politics, and education in the dental world. I'm Dr. Jeff Borowitz. With me is Dr. Jennifer Bell. You know her as JB and Dr. Chad Duplantis. We are all practicing dentists, we are all educators, and we are all business owners. Our job is to bring all of you in the know. Hey gang, it is Wednesday, it's hump day, I have something special next to me, I've got a Portuguese blend here uh, called Silk and Spice that I am absolutely adoring, I will probably be through it by the time JB gets through the news, so uh, could could end up being a fun night. Welcome to Wait, Dennis what is it? what's that? What is it? It's called Silk and Spice. It's a it's a blend from a red blend from Portugal. Oh, JB, you're freezing up again. Lovely. Anyway, welcome to Dennis in the Know. This is your backstage pass for current trends, politics, and education in the dental world. It is live, and it is over a beautiful glass of red for me. JB, what's uh, what are we? What are we having tonight? I saw something. Mm, let me guess. Let me guess. Sauvignon Blanc? Of course. It's a day that ends in Y. Very nice. Anyway, it is live and it is over a cocktail. We encourage your banter. Um, as you know, I am always here joined by my compadres, Jennifer Bell, Dr. Jennifer Bell, otherwise known as JB. Unfortunately, Chad couldn't be here tonight. Uh, we're sad about that. He's uh, actually over at the vet with one of his animals. So we wish he and his wife, Ellen, who are uh, who is also celebrating a birthday today. And if you ask me, that's a lousy way to celebrate a birthday. Uh, but we certainly wish Ellen the best and, and Chad and, of course, their uh, their fluffy friend. We hope uh, we hope everything works out well. Anyway, we are all educators. We are all business owners, and we are all practicing dentists. Our job is to bring all of you in the know, and we hope to have some fun doing it. So, JB, tell us how you're doing. How was your week? It's been pretty good. I feel like. I don't know if you experienced it because I know your business activities are a little different, but I do feel like we had a little bit of a lull in September. And I know a lot of people talked about September. Um, I do feel like we're coming out of that and things are picking back up again. It does feel like there's a lot more activity in the practice. And then on top of it, just a lot of kids activity. But I have to say I had a great weekend because um, one of the traditions that Brian and I started with our first son, who's now almost 14, was to do um, a special one-on-one -on -one trip with that child when they turned eight years old. So every kid has had their own individual trip around their eighth birthday. And so this past weekend was Miss Evelyn's eighth birthday trip, where we went to this Kennedy uh, center because she's really into NASA and SpaceX. Um, and I'm into Florida. And so we <laughs> went to Florida, went to the Kennedy Space Center, and then um, went down to uh, Fort Lauderdale and hung out by the water for a little bit. Little bit. And uh, it was just fun for her to have just mom and dad time because she's the third. So she doesn't get that very often. And it was obviously really nice to be in the warm weather for a brief period of time uh, and to sort of have just a nice little relaxation uh, opportunity in the middle of the fall, which I feel like has been full of kids activities between football and um, kids playing sports and other things. So it was a little bit of a nice uh, breath of fresh air. How about you? What have you been doing this week? Uh, you know, not too much. I was, um, as you know, I was at, uh, ICMO this past weekend. There were a lot of big dental meetings. Um, 
ADA had their meeting. Um, there were there were several meetings going on this weekend, but uh, I was at the International College of Craniomandibular Orthopedics meeting. What a great meeting! Um, what a fantastic group of people. Um, I, I was so impressed at the level of education there. Um, I met some really in incredible dentist that um, had so many great sidebar conversations. And mm-hmm. um, I just, I love geeking out at stuff like that. I mean, it's, you know, it's just one of my favorite things to do. Wasn't too far away. It was right in uh, Louisville. And um, it was, it was really pretty, pretty cool. It was a nice weekend. Uh, managed to make it back on Saturday. So got to spend Sunday at home. Um, pretty normal week so far. Um, aside from, uh, Chad's lovely wife, Ellen, celebrating a birthday today, uh, my mom is also celebrating a birthday today. So on the same day, yep, obviously two great ladies, uh, both who have had to put up with some serious crap, I am sure, <laughs> over the years. But uh, anyway, it's uh, we'll be celebrating going out with her and uh, Joel and his girlfriend are coming home. So we're excited. Should be great. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm just going to knock on wood for a semi-normal week. Does that exist for you? Yeah. I mean, what is semi-normal? I don't I don't know. It's, you know. That's what I'm asking. Yeah, semi-normal. I don't even know that that's really a, a word, but... Look, you know, I, I take it when when things are going well, I just I just sit back and take it. You know, that's don't, right. that's don't think right. about it too much. Hey, Dinks, if you like what you're hearing, you know what would be really cool? It'd be really cool if you joined our Facebook group, Dentist in the Know, or if you subscribe to our YouTube channel, Dentist in the Know. We'd love to have you join both groups and listen to us as much as your heart desires. Thanks for listening in. And let's bring our good buddy, Tom Viola, up. And um, this guy doesn't need an introduction. He's been lecturing on pharmacology and how pharmacology impacts the, uh, the dental profession for years and years. He's a great friend. He's a smart guy. And he's also from New Jersey. So score one for you. By the way, are you a Giants fan? I think we talked about this, right? The Giants are doing pretty well this year. I might have to become a Giants yeah. fan. Well, Giants are doing pretty lucky this year is, is what seems to be happening. So it's all good. Uh, but we'll take it. If you can't be good, be lucky. I agree. So it's all good. We'll, we'll take it. Yeah. So how you doing? What's what's new in the world of pharmacology? Anything you want to talk about? You're you know, you're you're a friend to our group, so spit it out and let's just let's just rock. Well, thank you so much for having me. First of all, you know, it's always a, a privilege to be with you guys and I, I enjoy very much uh, my time with you. I'm sorry, Chad, couldn't be here tonight, but it's great to be with JB. And, and uh, Jeff, what can I say? Uh, you, you keep things rolling. Um, I've got a lot to talk about tonight. Uh, it all depends on how much time you want to devote to each topic. But I'd like to talk a little bit about antibiotic prophylaxis again. Just to kind of hit it one more time, we want to talk about clindamycin and some of the misinformation. I don't, I don't use no. them. <laughs> Good. <Okay. Yeah. laughs> well, patients don't need antibiotics. Come on, I'm <laughs> suck <kidding>. it up. <laughs> uh, well, of course, of course, we're going to use antibiotics both uh, appropriately uh, and, of course, when when necessary. Uh, but there's a lot of misinformation about uh, clindamycin, and it seems like the since the American Heart Association put out its recommendations last May, um, May 2021, uh, a lot of people thought that that meant that we should stop using clindamycin altogether in the practice of dentistry. And that's not really the case at all. As a matter of fact, uh, clindamycin is one of our best uh, tools in the tool belt for treating types of infections that amoxicillin just can't touch. Uh, So I wanted to touch on that a little bit and let you know that uh, if you're out there, and you heard about the guidelines being proposed and then finally passed by the American Heart Association that indicated that clindamycin is no longer recommended for infective endocarditis prophylaxis. That did not change the stance of the practice of dentistry on, on the use of clindamycin. Yes, clindamycin can cause C. related uh, infection and C. related diarrhea and, and other complications, and it is could be life-threatening. There's no question about it. 
but the incidence is very small and you you really do avoid a lot of that potential from what everything i've read of what practitioners have told me if you go short you know no more than seven days with the clindamycin and usually that's about all you need to treat most infections yeah now how how does that compare with azithromycin why don't you tell us some of the differences between um, clindamycin and azithromycin and and why they've kind of moved azithromycin in and 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 are backing clindamycin out to some degree. Well, to be quite frank, we're only the, I think we may be perhaps the last profession that uses clindamycin on a regular basis. Uh, even dermatologists have given up on clindamycin for the most part for routine prescribing for, for what we call routine infections. That's not to say that it's not used in urgent care settings, hospitals, and so on for, for infections that are, are, you know, where we've done a culture insensitivity. But in general, we're one of the last professions that actually prescribe clindamycin uh, for routine infections. Now, the American Heart Association says we should not be using clindamycin because at this point, they feel the, the risk outweighs the benefit. Clindamycin is one of the last in a group of linkocyte antibiotics, which, of which uh, linkomycin was the first. Uh, but its spectrum is perfect for dentistry. It really does have great efficacy against uh, the, the bugs that we normally encounter in the mouth. Azithromycin is a macrolide antibiotic, which is a different class altogether. But the American Heart Association and, and some docs out there, some practitioners that I've met in my travels, uh, I was at the ADA meeting this week, and, and there were a couple there as well who told me they use azithromycin religiously. And I said, well, why? And what's the what's the catch? Why azithromycin? And their point is, well, azithromycin is not of the same class of penicillin or amoxicillin, so that the threat of allergic reaction is remote if it, at best. And it has the same spectrum for the most part, and it, it does a pretty good job. Plus, you, know, you can prescribe a ZPAC with, with confidence uh, in patients where you're not sure if there's a, a penicillin allergy. All well and good. But remember that azithromycin has been linked to arrhythmias, both uh, atrial and ventricular arrhythmias, in patients who are predisposed. So the thing is, would you know if that patient's predisposed? It's hard to tell as a dentist when you're taking medical histories on the fly and maybe have five to 10 minutes to devote to a medical history uh, if that patient truly has an issue. And don't forget, we use drugs in practice every day, local anesthetics and, and epinephrine, that increase the, the risk of arrhythmia. So azithromycin is not a bad drug. I don't want to give anybody that impression. But if I had my druthers, I'd still use clindamycin because it's really the devil you know versus the devil you don't. And, and it, I think clindamycin has its risks, but so does azith. And what is the what is the incidence? Because we really we heard about you know a lot of the arrhythmia concern during the uh, during the COVID thing when people were talking about using a Z pack, you know, and and you know some some other methodology for for helping to uh, to battle COVID. What what do you see as the incidence of these types of arrhythmias? It's it, it what it's an elongated QT or something like that. Is that yeah, correct? QT prolongation. So yeah, yeah. How, yeah how, how how often does that happen? Say compared to the incidence of someone developing C diff from from prescribing clindamycin. QT prolongation related arrhythmias are pretty rare. Uh, versus C. diff-related infection that may be occurring as a result of clindamycin use. The thing is, Jeff, how many of those arrhythmias are actually noticeable and reported? That's the problem. So patients can have arrhythmias and not even know it, uh, and that may mean nothing. It may mean that nothing happened, there's no ill effects, but we don't know who's predisposed, and we don't know who ends up getting an arrhythmia and later on develops some, some complication beyond that. Obviously, C. diff-related infection is, is pretty obvious when it does happen. Uh, and, and again, it can be life-threatening. But think about the cumulative use of clindamycin over all these years in dentistry versus the, the use of azithromycin. And you've got to wonder if there was really something to the, the use of clindamycin uh, that, that put so many people at risk, we, we probably wouldn't be using it anymore. So the fact is, they're both pretty safe. Yeah, I just wanted to get a clarification on the arrhythmias. Is that a permanent arrhythmia or is that a temporary arrhythmia based on the medication? And then 
there's a reset or from what I read, it can be both. Yeah, it can be a, a, a temporary arrhythmia, uh, but some people who suffer damage as a result of it can have a, a lifelong issue. Uh, but that's again pretty rare. And, and you, you know, you can tell because if you if you poll just an audience of people, not just in dentistry, but just average, you know, out there, accountants to construction workers to whatever, and just you know, how many of you have taken a ZPAC? A lot of hands would go up because azithromycin as a ZPAC is prescribed pretty widely in medicine. And if you ask them, okay, how many of you knew or were, were told that you might get an arrhythmia? I don't think you'd get many hands going up at all. So just because it's not well known doesn't mean it doesn't happen. I think a lot of it may be that it's just not reported. Yeah. And the point I was going to make is just that it's really easy in most cases to know those patients that are going to be predisposed to C. diff, right? I mean, it th- that's going to show up much more readily in our medical histories. You know, the the people with ulcerative colitis and and irritable bowel syndrome and you know other lower GI uh, maladies. You know, w- we know that we have to be more careful with them right away. So you know, it, it it's almost I I would agree with you because clindamycin has really kept a lot of my patients out of the emergency room where. You know, let's put this on it, a real heavy dose of it. And if it doesn't resolve or if things go in the other direction, then go to the emergency room. And it's it's not until you throw that clindamycin at it that that the cellulitis resolves. Right. And, and I agree with you that um, let's put it this way. Some people do get C. diff related uh, diarrhea and other complications without having any predisposition whatsoever. They, it just happens. But normally it happens with longer uh, courses of, of treatment with clindamycin. So, you, so to your point, Jeff, and it makes good sense that we probably would know in advance. Uh, but yeah, you can't beat the fact that clindamycin does, does the job where other antibiotics fail. It, just because it's, look, if I had osseous infection, if I had, you know, significant you know, soft tissue infection, I'd probably be asking for clindamycin as a dental professional, you know, if I wanted something prescribed. So, Jeff, this is an interesting question, given your current uh, side gig that you're participating in. But if a lot of the data and research starts coming out against Clinda, where does that put the liability on prescribers continuing to write? You know, if if the a few data points start coming out against prescribers using it, even I mean, we can go back to when everyone said we shouldn't be doing IAM blocks with septicane. It was going to shut everybody's face down and the whole world was going to end. And now if anyone gets sued for paresthesia related to using articane, that those articles still kind of trickle back into the courtroom. So from a liability perspective, Tom, where does this put practitioners? Well, that's the thing. You know, this is a guideline. Uh, much like the the thing with septicane or articane used for uh, inferior alveolar blocks and the potential for paresthesia, it's it's a guideline from the American Heart Association just for the prevention of infective endocarditis. We have not had a statement from the ADA or the AGDs uh, or any position at all on the use of clindamycin in dentistry, as far as I know of. I mean, if you guys know better, please let me know. We've all been made aware of the the, the dangers of using clindamycin, but there's nothing out there that specifically states in the practice of dentistry that we should not be using it. It's that's really it's it's so interesting, and it'll be really interesting to see where this goes. and And I'm going to lean on you. I'm I'm sure that um, you know you've you've probably been exposed to uh, a lot of legal cases and in, in involving prescribing by dentists and. Um, I've been getting called in on more and more defense work on behalf of the South Carolina JUA. And, um, you know, we've actually had a few cases where the antibiotic prescribed um, has caused some GI issues. And, and in my experience, it's really been about informed consent, you know, that, that the prescriber kind of went through everything they could possibly do. And then it's just, you had to do something. And did you use good clinical judgment when you made the choice to pick the one that you did? You know, there, there is no perfect medicine 
in any circumstance, right? So you kind of have to pick the one that has the best chance of having, you know, the, the fewest side effects, but you can't always predict that. So really to me, it's about informing the patient of potential risks, what to look for, and that it is a possibility. And, and really with most malpractice, there has to be either some conscious ignoring of of some standard like a a willingness to violate some well-known standard that other people with similar education to you uh would not have violated and and so that's been my experience would would you agree with that tom i think i've always said the same line over and over when we get to this part of the discussion you know never treat a stranger Right. You never treat a stranger. You always get to know your patient as best you can uh, before you render any treatment. And, yeah, there's going to be times when you made the decision that you thought was prudent at the time. But remember, the other analogy I like to use is when the city bus gets into an accident, who's the one person they asked all the questions to? It's the bus driver. Right. So at the end of the day, you're driving the bus. So you've got to be able to make the decision and, and be able to not only make that decision, but give your your opinion as to why you made that decision and be able to stand by it. So again, I love having these discussions. Anybody who's listening right now, I'm not telling you to prescribe clindamycin or azithromycin. You've got to make your own decisions, but I just want to make sure we cleared up some of the misinformation out there because I've got a lot of docs coming up to me saying, okay, I can't use clindamycin anymore. What's next? And I said, well, where did that, when did that happen? So I'm glad we had that talk. It was good. No, great, great stuff. Well, what else you got? I got Whoa, street drugs. Wait a minute. Um, not with me. <laughs> is, is that an offer to sell or, or I'm, I'm not sure where this yeah, is going we'll now. I'll have to yeah, take they, that up after this discussion, but. Uh, <laughs> I got street drugs. I got street drugs. <laughs> you know, I, I love talking to you guys about stuff like this, like this clindamycin issue. And also, forgive me, I'm sorry. And also this uh, issue with uh, street drugs that are becoming more and more. Uh, powerful and more and more addiction potential because this is like cutting edge stuff. And that's why I love sharing it with you guys first. So fentanyl has always been an issue. Fentanyl remains an issue. Uh, that's, that's something that uh, I don't think we could ever change. I, I love it when people say, you know, uh, you two prescribers, uh, you dentists and medical doctors and nurse practitioners and, and physician assistants, whether or they're allowed, you prescribers contribute to the opioid epidemic. I'm not saying we don't. Uh, certainly, there's enough uh, evidence of diversion uh, that you can make the argument that prescribed opioids have contributed. But to be quite frank with you, based on my time working with law enforcement and the DEA, and, and, and it's really fentanyl and heroin that have contributed greatly to the opioid epidemic that we're in now. And, and now fentanyl even more so because mm-hmm. heroin is just hard to make. Fentanyl is cheap and easy to make, and it's easily transported. And it's not, it's microgram doses. We're not talking about a lot of of powder. We're not talking about a lot of drug. Uh, And it can be easily mixed with other things to make that other thing something you'd want to buy more of. And so we're starting to see cases now of fentanyl-laced marijuana. Uh, Again, according to the DEA, and this is a fact that they've often told me, uh, they believe 80% of cannabis sales in the United States are black market. And I would believe that based on my experience, what I've seen, you know, out there on the street. And I will tell you that um, a lot of it may be indeed laced with fentanyl, because if you get a choice to buy from, you know, this person or that person, and this person's got not an unusual kind of cannabis, but this person's cannabis really does make you feel much more euphoria, uh, much more relaxed. You're going to want to use this person's cannabis, not marijuana, not knowing, of course, that it's been laced with fentanyl. So that's something we need to be aware of, that, that opioid overdose can happen to your patients, even if they don't think they're using an opioid uh, because of this potential for fentanyl being mixed in with, with virtually anything at this point. Uh, and the other drug to worry about is xylazine. Now, xylazine is, is comparatively unknown in the United States when you compare it to fentanyl. Yeah, I better write it down. Hold yeah, on. Yeah, you just, you just dropped one on me that I am complete. Yeah. yeah. Xylazine, right. Yeah. But like xylophone with an XY. 
So, so xylazine is an, a, a veterinary tranquilizer. Uh, it's, it's you. Is it like a benzodiazepine? Is it in the benzodiazepine no, class? An, or? An, Usually when you, when I hear zine, that, that, that's what I was yeah, thinking. So xylazine is, is in a class by itself as a tranquilizer. Uh, again, used mostly in veterinary medicine. It's not approved for human use at all. Uh, but obviously it can be used by humans in very small doses. It's known on the street as Trank, T-R-A-N-Q, but street names come and go. The point is, it's a tranquilizer uh, for humans in low doses that can be added to virtually any drug, again, much like fentanyl. And it increases the euphoria, but also increases the risk of respiratory depression. So you can imagine if if you've got some backyard chemists who are mixing fentanyl and xylazine and cannabis together, trying to get that perfect mixture. Unfortunately, what I've seen in my experience is they usually make those combinations and try them out on unwitting people to find out how it went. Uh, this was pretty common when fentanyl came on the scene. And you, you, we heard stories of people who were dealing heroin who also gave people Narcan to take with them. To, to, to treat overdose because they weren't sure how that person would react. And so you're seeing that now with, with these fentanyl and, and xylazine combinations with other drugs. And I'm just concerned because we have patients that use cannabis. They, they use it as a, a treatment for medical conditions. They use it for recreational use, certainly. A lot of states allow it, even though technically you're only supposed to buy it at a dispensary. But the point is, as I've said in many of my lectures, when your patient says, yes, I use cannabis, I don't think they know, and I don't think you will ever really know what they mean by that, because there's so many different forms of cannabis, and we don't know what's been laced with what. So if they're purchasing from a dispensary, is that an equivalent to a pharmaceutical um, acquisition, where a, a consumer could feel probably safe that th that particular uh, dispensary is providing safe cannabis? Yeah, JB, depending on the state, I mean, most states either have some type of licensing or some type of reg registration process for dispensaries, and they're, they're, they're bound by, by basically uh, following certain regulations and rules according to the, the, uh, the state that they're in for the production of cannabis for sale. But that, according to my understanding, and I don't think there's any, there's any change lately, that's the only legal way to buy mm -hmm. cannabis as through a dispensary, even if it is a recreational use state. Once you buy a black market, I mean, there's plenty of those types of, of cannabis that are out there. For example, I can, if you, if you Googled Trips Ahoy, and I'm not making this up, right? Trips Ahoy cookies exist. I'm sure a lot of people who are listening may know this. Those are cannabis-infused chocolate chip cookies uh, that are readily available for sale, okay? And then you've got gummies. And, and it surprises me that some people will say, I don't want to take any drug from Big Pharma because Big Pharma is out to get me. When those drugs are FDA approved as, as safe and effective, but they'll stick a gummy in their mouth and not really know what its origin is. So I, I guess what I'm saying is if your patients are using cannabis, we don't really know what that means. And that means if you are going to use a benzodiazepine uh, for, for conscious sedation or, or minimal oral sedation, and if you are going to prescribe an opioid for a patient, uh, for pain. And they've, they've, they've basically said, I swear, you know, I don't use anything but cannabis. That may not be 100% true, even if they don't, if they're not aware of it themselves. So, Tom, this brings up a, a, a good question, because, you know, I mean, one of the things you mentioned was this, you know, the, the incredibly small dose that's required of, of fentanyl and how little it takes to become lethal. I mean, you know, we've we've all heard that there's enough fentanyl in the United States to kill every American 10 times at at this point. So, why what would the advantage be to someone to put this into other street drugs and basically, I mean, I know this is not even dental related, but this is something that just blows my mind. Why would you put unknown amounts of these drugs into other drugs and basically kill off the people that you're selling to. I, that's the part of this whole equation that I'm not really getting. And maybe you could shed some light on that. Yeah, it's all about market share. Jeff, if you remember, uh, uh, maybe 15 years ago, heroin, heroin was a drug that 
was only available in the 70s and 80s and pretty much went away. Nobody was ever using heroin. It was, you know, like your, your, your grandfather's or your father's heroin. And all of a sudden, heroin came, came back and, and made a tremendous comeback because the heroin that was available at that point was so much more potent that you didn't need to inject it at that point. You could swallow it. You can smoke it. So it's all about market share. There's a, there's a limited, finite number of people who will use substances. And if I want my piece of that market share, I will have to create a drug that people will want to use. So about 15 years ago, it was you know this now much more pure heroin. Now it's more of, of a slant towards, okay, we've got an established base of people that use cannabis. And it's, it's practically legal, you know, if it's not already legal in that state. Now I want to get those people to buy my product versus somebody else's product. How do I entice them to do that? I'm going to add these other chemicals to my cannabis to make it a little better. You're right. Got to be careful that I don't kill them, but I got to make sure that I, I add enough to make it worthwhile that don't want to come see me from now on and nobody else. I mean, are these guys real chemists that they can, are they true chemists that they can actually do? I mean, we see how many deaths there are. You'd be surprised that, you know, even Mm -hmm. bath salts, which is, you know, kind of a a, a term from 15 years ago, were created mostly as synthetic captainones in in chemistry labs by people with pharmaceutical experience in Australia and, and East Africa and even Great Britain. So the idea is there are chemists. And I have seen Breaking Bad, by the way. <laughs> I'm sure you have, right? <laughs> you know, there are people who have the experience that are highly sought after, who can make these chemical congeners of fentanyl, and not just fentanyl, but, but drugs like it. Uh, and, and so the DEA is having a hard time trying to keep track of all of the different substances that are currently being made, because some of them don't even, uh, don't even show up on tests. Will you bring uh, just and and I'm sorry, JB. I'll I'll let you ask another question. I'm just I'm so fixated on this whole fentanyl thing because I remember even in in dental school when I would go through the oral surgery clinic and they would have the chalkboard right there of you know what they were planning to give and then what they actually gave and you know fentanyl was always on the board, but with other narcotics and benzos and and I thought, what a mess. Like, you start putting, why do you need that many medications? And I understand propofol hadn't really, you know, it, it really hadn't found its place yet. Um, it, it had, but it, it wasn't commonplace yet. And everyone was doing the, the you know, uh, doing the narcotic uh, benzo combinations to, to, to put their patients to sleep for oral surgery anyway. But I guess my question is this. Do you really see a place for fentanyl in in dentistry or in oral surgery? I mean, is is the margin of error that small or is that something that has really just been ingrained in us because of all the deaths that we're seeing in you know, in, in the general public. So maybe just shed some light on the, the use of the traditional use of fentanyl in a true medical setting and safety that way. I'd be really curious. For I one. think fentanyl is a perfectly safe drug to use when used as, as, as we've said before, when used as indicated for that particular patient for that need. So do I, do I tell uh, doctors who prescribe uh, fentanyl or who use fentanyl in the office for sedation or for uh, anxiolysis not to use um, uh, fentanyl uh, as an opioid to start conscious sedation? Absolutely not. I mean, it's a, it's a good drug to use. It's been used safely for years. Hank, um, I even remember when we used to use ketamine in dentistry as a dissociative hallucinogen to, to move to separate people from the actual procedure itself. So uh, the drugs that we use in dentistry, you know, fentanyl as an opioid, propofol as, as a sedative agent, uh, and, and other drugs that we use are perfectly safe. The danger, Jeff, is not what we're using in practice. We're, we are well-trained, and if we're following our, our standards and, and, and appropriate practices and standards of care, we know what we're doing. But the problem has become that the patient is taking more of the same drugs that we're using in practice 
in high, more highly purified forms and dosages, and thereby creating this potential for additive side effects. We're not doing anything wrong necessarily if we're following good practices. It's just the patient's has the patient has changed over time to a patient who now uses those very same substances, and that increases the risk for us as clinicians. Can can I piggyback on that to say um, so as patients may have additional exposure to let's just say laced cannabis and other things, then we go to sedate that patient. You know, today is the day we're going to take out a tooth and and we're going to do sedation. I've been in a sedation experience before on a known addict trying to sedate them down enough to be able to do full mouth extractions, and you couldn't give them enough to get them down. They just kept ping-ponging back out in and out of consciousness. And so for the general clinician who is trying to do light conscious sedation or like maybe moderate conscious sedation without advanced airway techniques... How do they pre-screen those patients or safeguard themselves? Is there any way to understand the the risk profile of these now, what we would have termed recreational, maybe cannabis users or whatever, uh, but they start to pose a real risk for those who are trying to sedate, I would imagine. Oh, yeah. I've heard many stories from, from clinicians who just try to sedate just if you want to just yeah. call them just cannabis users who end up becoming very combative uh, once they've been sedated and they actually require physical restraint. Uh, now imagine that that same person used cannabis that's been laced with fentanyl, laced with xylazine, and you find out that when you're using what you consider to be the right regimen of drugs, you've used hundreds of times in other patients, and now they fall more deeply into sedation where their airway may be compromised, and you had no expectation of this in advance. The, the best thing we can do, JB, is, is two things. One, again, never treat a stranger. Make sure we, we know everything about that patient and make sure that you know, we're yeah. not the police. We don't care if you're using stuff. We just want to know what, what you're using. Remember, they may not know what they're using. They may think they're just using Joe's, you know, cannabis and have no idea that it's been laced with anything. But then the other thing is, if you really want to be careful, the best thing would be to at least try to mandate that patients don't use any recreational substances for as long as you think necessary. Some docs have told me 48 hours, 72 hours. Some have even said a week that they want the patient to abstain completely. Now, you can ask. That doesn't mean that they're going to do it. But anything you can do to separate that use of that recreational drug from what you're going to use in the procedure at least increases, in my mind, the safety margin as best we can. Hey, Dinks. Thanks so much for listening to our podcast today. Remember to rate and review your favorite podcast. Subscribe and enjoy what you like or it goes away. Well, one effective technique I had when I had a patient one time who had been a known uh, cocaine user prior to. And, you know, there is there is data to suggest the epinephrine and cocaine mixture would not be very beneficial for the patient. And you can embellish that a bit. And I said, now, you know, if I give you this shot, it could kill you if you've had cocaine within the last 24 hours. So did you have cocaine in the last 24 hours? And he was like, I'll come back tomorrow. And he got up out of the chair and walked out. So, I mean, you can, you can get kind of dramatic and say, look, <laughs> we can do this, but it could kill you. And if you're cool with that, let's go. They'll be real honest with you real fast after that. I couldn't have said it better. You know, I, I heard a, a couple of do- doctors have come with me over the course of time and said they actually put it in the, in the consent forms. Like if you've used any substance prior, within the last 48 or 72 hours, be, be advised that this could be life-threatening. And, and people read it, and you can see them, like, pause, they would tell me, at, at that one sentence. Say, well, what do you mean? You know, can I really die? And I, I agree with you 100%. That's probably the best way to do it is to just put a little fear into them and say, look, if you're going to use substances, that's not in my business, but not on not in, in my backyard. Don't do not do it here. Exactly. But you can only ask. And, and some people, you really can't make it. You know, I, I think this brings up a really really important conversation because so many dentists, especially more general dentists getting into implants and by getting into more surgery, they're also getting into more sedation. And, and I think that, you know, as dentists typically, you know, the one thing I've noticed in, in 30 years of practice 
is that typically across the board, we suck at informed consent. Like we're, we're really bad at it. We're so afraid to tell patients that there's a 7% chance that the nerve is going to die in their tooth just because they needed to have a crown done. And yet the dermatologist is okay telling them they could drop dead from the anesthetic injection, you know, to remove a mole. And, and you know, it, it's just this thing about dentistry that we think everything we do has to be successful. Everything we do has to be painless. Everything we do has to be perfect. And so I, I think this brings up a really important conversation about informed consent, which is how do we get our, our patients like, you know, I loved your technique. That was that's awesome. But for me, when I would do a sedation, I would actually ask my assistant to leave at one point, close the door, or if there was no door on the room, because many operatories do not have doors to them anymore, in a low voice, say exactly what you said, Tom. Listen, I am not the police. I am not here to judge you. My job is to keep you safe. So I need to know. If you've been on any recreational drugs, and I need to know that you're not going to be on any recreational drugs within 48 hours, do I have your word on that? And can I make a note in the chart that you've given me your word on that? And, you know, once I get that permission, I don't even care that the assistant is not in the room. If I have to go, you know, if I have to go one on one, I just think sometimes there's a stigma of, okay, these people are judging me, especially when it's two on one. So for, I, I mean, it may not legally, it may not have legs, but but that's just how I've done it. But I, I think it deserves a good conversation, right? On on how do we get this information from patients? Two points to, to your points, Jeff. Number one, remember that uh, in my opinion, having been involved with dentists now for almost 30 years, there's this impression that people get that all of dentistry is elective. Yeah. You know, I really don't need to see the dentist, but, you know, I, I, I go to, to see the dentist because I'm supposed to. But I got to go to the dermatologist because I might have skin cancer. So I, I get the idea that we, we kind of shy away from informed consent because it's almost like, well, we're going to push the, the few people that really want to come see us away and then we won't have any business. Of course, that's not true, but that seems to be still that the, the attitude out there is, yeah, I got to go see the dentist. Okay, great. The other thing to your point is you don't want to be the police and you do want to get that note in the chart. But be advised, some of my colleagues have told me I'd rather not know, because if I don't know, then I can't be held responsible later if something happens. I think that is a bad way of approaching dentistry. I think the more well-informed you are and the more you document, the better, because at the very least, you're showing you a genuine concern for the patient and their well-being. And not knowing and not asking is not a, a, a way to defend yourself later because anyone's going to ask you, why didn't you ask? Well, plus you're setting yourself up for the unknown. And I had one true asshole of an oral surgeon <laughs> attending in dental school. And he was a true, I, I mean, I have no qualms saying he was an asshole because anyone who's ever met this man would say he was an asshole. But he did say one thing that has really resonated with me throughout my entire career, which is he used to say, and exactly in this voice, if you prepare for an emergency, the emergency ceases to exist. And so I just don't want any damn emergencies. I, I don't want that. I'm, I'm at that point in my career where I'm good without the drama in practice, right? So, but, but I think to your point, that's really something that everybody should consider is I, I don't believe in don't ask, don't tell in, in practice. I, I just I don't see where that benefits anybody. I think it needs to be on every medical history form. I think it needs to be in writing. I need to think the patient needs to sign off on it. If you're uncomfortable having those conversations and if you've attended my opioid course, you know, that's what I say. And I, and I see a lot of people get squirming in their seats when I say it. You have to interview the patient. You have to say to them, 
Do you use other substances? What are they? Have you had an issue with substances in your past? I don't want to ask that question. It's an awkward conversation. Great. Then get it on the medical history form, alter your form to include those things. Have the patient check off yes and no and have them sign it. And that is their consent, in my mind, to, to telling you, okay, here's what I know about my history. Should you ask them anyway? I still would ask them, but at least you've got something now to start the conversation. I see you checked off yes, son, that you've used substances in the past. Tell me more about that. At least that way you've got the, the conversation rolling. If it says no, but, you know, everybody has that sixth sense, like, hmm, let me, let me ask anyway. Start the conversation out. Well, excuse me, you said no as far as using substances. Are we, are we okay with that? Is, is that, you know, is that something that you read and, and check no willingly, or is there something else you want to tell me? Again, even if it's in a low voice, even if you don't want to say it when no one else is in the room, Get the conversation rolling, but get it documented because documentation saves you in the long run. One thing I do do at least like about the fact that cannabis has become more acceptable, et cetera, I have more patients disclosing that openly, where if I went back 15 years ago and it was still a very taboo substance, um, you would never see it on a health history. They wouldn't ask you like, is it okay after this procedure if I resume back to, you know, my normal cannabis use or whatever, you know, it, it's becoming a, a more open conversation for everybody to participate in, which actually is really better for all of us to be a part of that. So the problem, and I agree with you, the problem JP is that cannabis has now become so, uh, you know, socially acceptable, politically acceptable, medically acceptable. It's become a vehicle for other drugs. Now that everyone uses cannabis, cannabis is now a vehicle to launch other drug use with. And, and then, and again, not necessarily related to dentistry, but keep in mind, if you're a parent or a grandparent listening to this, your kids have never had greater access to cannabis than they do now, and thereby never had greater access to other drugs like fentanyl and xylazine as they do now. So, you know, don't be surprised that the kids ultimately may be the victims here uh, because, you know, they're, they're exposed to the same drugs that, that we may be taking for granted for recreational use. But in their, uh, in their smaller bodies and smaller volumes of distribution, that same drug could be deadly. So real quick speed round, because we're just about out of time. Um, but one, I heard a report just this evening that 49% of teenagers have now tried cannabis, which is the highest rate by far ever in in our history. So I think, you know, to we all have to be aware that it is readily available. And, uh, you know, anyone who wants to try it is going to try it. At yes, this just point. remember, those are the ones but, that admitted to it. Right, right, right. What I want to ask you real quick, because I think one of the big takeaways from tonight's show is how important the use of cannabis might be towards their medical history, especially if we're thinking about sedation. So two quick questions. One, tell us if it was just cannabis, you know, what are the risks involved with sedating a patient using just cannabis? And then of course, what are the risks if it happens, which you said earlier, but a few people on since then. What are the risks if that cannabis happens to be something else like many of the street preparations are right now? Okay, so if there is such a thing as just pure cannabis, and we're saying it's, it's <laughs> an extract, you know, or an oil or a wax or something, or even plant material, if it's just... Assuming it's bought from a, from a right, dispensary. So just just cannabis, see. right. Then I would say we, we, two things we worry about. Number one is getting the patient sedated, starting the sedation process. I've heard is a little more difficult for patients because they're a little more resistant to sedatives if they're a heavy cannabis user. And then once they are sedated, they become combative and a lot of times require physical restraint and maybe even termination of the, of the whole procedure because they become too combative. So that's just if it was pure cannabis and nothing else. Now, if it's been adulterated, and we'll just use the two things we talked about tonight, fentanyl and xylazine, and any other drug you use that's an opioid or a benzodiazepine 
is likely to have an exaggerated effect and response. And so that can threaten the airway and that can make that, that whole sedation process an emergency. So that's why it's important to be able to ask the patient directly, do you or do you not use cannabis? And, and the next question has to be, do you get it at a dispensary or do you get it from some, somewhere else? And if they say they get it from somewhere else, I'm going to assume at that point it's tainted with something to be 100% safe and, and then adjust my doses accordingly and go low and go slow. Tom, thanks so much. Um, we are over time. You will come back next quarter because we cannot have three months of Dennis in the know. Because we have to do bisphosphonates. That's next. I you. have. Um, we've had so many questions. Oh, yes. <laughs> No, that's next. That's next. We didn't chapter. even touch that, and so maybe, yeah, maybe that's even before three months. So um, everybody, stay tuned. Tom is a guy we are never going to let get too far away from Dennis in the know because I learn so much from him every time he's on. I hope you do too. I know most of you do. I could see from the comments a lot of you do. So, Tom, um, as always, thank you. Um, hey, Jeff, thank you. You remember Pat Hayden? I remember Pat Hayden sitting on the bench when Vince Ferragamo got up and, and led the Rams to the Super Bowl. Hey, you can't get a bigger yes. Rams fan than me. <laughs> shortest shortest quarterback in the uh, NFL, baby. Never. There's a chance. 5'11". There's still 5'11 a chance. 5'11". <laughs> How about that? Hey, Jeff, JB and Jeff, I want to tell you real quick. I want to tell you. Thank you three, you you two and Chad, for what you do for this profession. So many people come up to me after I do these uh, episodes with you and say, that was a great episode. I really enjoyed it. And I say, wow, someone's going to be able to tell you three what an impact you're having on the profession. So thank you for doing what you do every day. Oh, thank you. We really appreciate That means a lot to us. And, you know, aside from the huge salary we're all knocking down doing this, <laughs> that is the next best thing. That we could hear. Yeah. Cha-ching. I'll yeah. expect my envelope in the mail. <laughs> We're giving away free cannabis. Yes. All right, Tom. Thanks a lot. We're going to drop you out. <laughs> Great Thanks, to guys. see you, buddy. And we will talk again Night, soon. Tom. And we can't wait to Amen. do that. Thank Be good. You too. Okay. All right. Take care. And that wraps up another podcast for Dennis in the Know. On behalf of Dr. Jennifer Bell, Dr. Chad Duplantis, and myself, remember that we've got a great profession, so let's make it a great day, dinks.